Welcome to Green Minds, the Southeast Sustainability Directors Network's podcast. I'm Catherine Mercia Baggett, co-hosting with Laurel Creech. At the hinge of April and May this year, several members of SSDN congregated to beautiful Savannah for a first in-person annual meeting since you know what started. Like most attendees, I came back inspired, energized and refreshed and much more knowledgeable. We had a handful of traditional presentations, but most information exchanged happened at peer learning sessions where we got to hear what others are doing in their respective communities. The session on reducing single-use plastics resonated with me in particular. For Mary Pat Baldoff with Columbia, South Carolina, it was a session on urban heat islands and mitigation strategies presented by Tobin Freed and Durham County, North Carolina, and Katie Rose Levin from Cary, also in North Carolina, that captivated her. So in this episode, Mary Pat will first explain why she found the session inspiring, and she will be followed by a recap of Tobin and Katie Rose's presentation. Hey, Mary Pat, thank you so much for accepting the call for inspirational stories from our annual meeting. Would you mind starting off by introducing yourself, your role, and the community that you serve? I'd be glad to. Um, uh, my name is Mary Pat Baldoff. It's a good Southern double name. I am a sustainability facilitator for the city of Columbia, which is the capital city of South Carolina. I have about 148,000 people in a population. Much of it is uh, state government. I am the sustainability facilitator, office of one, and my office is located in public works. And I think because Columbia, like most places, public works is involved in everything. The public works director just was a was a real dynamo. And I think they said wanted to assign this project to her office. And then also recycling in solid waste is in public works. But I work with an, a citizens advisory committee and our staff, our elected officials and our residents to promote and advocate for the mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions, to adapt to climate change, and to conserve natural resources, and otherwise care for the environment. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of a lone wolf. I have a lot of support from my boss, public works director, and a lot of good relationships within this city, the department heads and division heads. It's a great, great gig. Sounds like a good team. It's always good to have other people's back, especially if you're in office of one. I know. <laughs> so you mentioned that you were really inspired at the annual meeting. And I would like you to tell us about the University of South Carolina's project about uh, heat mapping and the associated NOAA grant and how these connect to what you heard at the annual meeting. Well, when I was looking at the uh, agenda, I knew I had to go to that one because Columbia and Richland County was just named one of the 14 cities that is getting the grant and doing the urban heat mapping. And all we did was write a letter of support. It was a good one, but, um, but our CPAC committee, our Climate Protection Action Committee, our advisory appointees, our, our citizens advisory group, and the Public Works Department wrote letters of support. And I really, frankly, didn't know a lot about urban heat mapping. I know they did it in Charleston, and I know that uh, we applied for it last year is all I knew. So I decided to go to that session, and it was led by Tobin Freed, 
I want to be like her when I grow up. I'm so impressed with her. And she makes everything fun. And she's so enthusiastic. So I thought I could just pick up some tips and learn a little bit more. And I was surprised how inspirational it was and how much I learned about the whole process. And I got so excited that I was practically turning cartwheels. I was like, oh, we're doing this. And I wrote down a lot of notes and, you know, just having a contact who had done it was great or will be great. Yes, absolutely. Do you feel that you're going to be able to get involved in that project? We are probably going to be involved anyway, but but now I'm excited about it. Uh, thanks to Tobin and, and, and her group. And it's just, it's just amazing the impact it can have and the information, the data you can get and the impact you can have knowing this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make darn sure that we're really involved in it. It's actually... It was submitted by our forestry and beautification division and with the University of South Carolina. And there are a lot of public-private partners at the table. I mean, I think we have a list of about 30, but the university is kind of heading it up from logistical standpoint. It sounds like it's going to be a a massive project or it's just a very large steering group. (laughs) Right. It is that we're going to be mapping 160 square miles, and then you monitor the temperatures in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, and you do it by vehicle. There are sensors put on vehicles, and there's a driver, a guide, or I guess your uh, backseat driver to kind of <laughs> help you get there. We're going to need a lot of people. And it's going to be a lot. You said 160 square miles. Square miles. Wow, that's that's some yeah. territory. So it, is it just the city of Columbia or it's, it's larger? city and Richland County, the county this city is in. Okay. All but, right. you know, it's going to be a massive amount of people. Yeah, so you're, you're, you'll be looking for, well, not necessarily you, but the project will be looking for volunteers, I presume? Yes, and we got our first call out in our newsletter this week. Oh, I hope you, I hope you get a lot of uh, I know. people respond. And it starts like at six in the morning. And I'm just weird enough to be excited about all this. <laughs> and like I said, thanks to Tobin, I was kind of like, oh, well, I'll go to this one. And I just left thinking, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much fun. You know, very impactful. I like that opportunity to get the community to contribute mm-hmm. in a really meaningful manner. I might be wrong, but I have the impression that Columbia is a city. There must be some suburbs, but within the county, there also must be some rural or forested areas. Yes. It's kind of ironic when our Convention and Visitors Bureau branded Columbia about 10 years ago, the, the slogan they selected was famously hot. <laughs> it, is, it is stuck. That was like three slogans ago. But everybody still uses famously hot because you can relate to it. You know, it's like we're always so hot. Mm-hmm. There the state, all this concrete. We're just hot and a hot place to be, of course. But um, so we're, we'll have a lot of fun with that angle, I think. We'll play with that as we recruit volunteers. We've been having more and more extreme weather events, mostly um, flash storms and the flash rains mm-hmm. and flooding. Right. Us too. Yes. And then in October of 2015, everything was right with the hurricane coming through and we got 20 inches of rain 
and had a thousand year flood. And it's, it was horrible. People died and lost their homes. But it has it has helped, I think, because people see, okay, this can happen in Columbia, South Carolina. We don't have to live at the beach to be impacted by climate change. It really has, I think, made it a little bit easier for us to talk about climate change and involve people. A horrible way to have to happen, but we're all still very aware of what happened. Well, in Atlanta, we had one of those events in 2009, and people are still talking about it. I know. So it's definitely a a life-changing, traumatic event. And like you said, it's it's very unfortunate that sometimes we need an event like that to kind of wake up. Right, open our eyes. Right, and start paying attention. Mm. Uh, I think that will be helpful in us getting volunteers. I, I would be really interested in seeing the differences between, you know, your urban core mm-hmm. and then your more pastoral or forested areas. Right. How how big is that heat difference? Right. Yeah. And Tobin, I think their biggest difference was 11 degrees and it was within two a mile of each other, two places within a mile of each other. So, I mean, I, you know. I never took statistics in college. I changed majors to avoid it. And now I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So this could be fun. Again, Tobin just got me totally excited about doing it. She really is awesome. <laughs> but I mean, really, they talked a lot about and engaging all different kinds of people, mm-hmm. not just the usual suspects. I mean, it's easy to get a Sierra Club person up at 6 a.m. To, to go do urban heat stuff. But I mean, to it really involve a wider community, get them engaged is going to be a great opportunity. Yes, definitely. What's um, what's the timeline on that project? We just found out yesterday that it's going to be August 6th. I was one of the first ones to go sign up. We have a thing on our website now. And it's is it going to be only on that one day? Yes, only that one day. The actual monitoring, yes. Like I said, all I can say was I just got so enthusiastic about it. I think just because I understood it better and they, you know, shared more of the impacts and it's not just boring mapping, not just GIS, it's not just monitoring temperatures, but it's really involving people Mm -hmm. and getting information that they, they and we can use to keep people healthy and safe during these extreme heat events. I don't know if it gets any hotter here, how anybody will survive. (laughs) Uh, I agree. It it can be so challenging here too. And I think yeah. it's it's a bit cooler in, in Atlanta. One of the, the very positive outcomes of this study, I presume, is going to be increasing the tree canopy. Yes. And that is one of the reasons the Tree and Appearance Commission is so engaged. That makes sense. And and that's a very positive solution. I, typically, people are, are going to be in favor of planting more trees. You're right. It's hard to be against it. Thank you so much for your, your insight. And I hope that you will get to contribute to this project. And we're really looking forward to uh, seeing the results. And they're going to have to beat me off with a stick. <laughs> I'm that excited about us getting involved. That's fantastic. So we'll check in with you later. Okay. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. And now Tobin and Katie Rose will talk about their project. Good morning, Tobin, Katie Rose. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
let's get started. If you don't mind briefly introducing yourselves, your role, the community that you serve. Good morning. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here with you and Katie Rose to talk about Urban Heat Island. Uh, my name is Tobin Freed. I am the Sustainability Manager for Durham County, which is, I believe, the fifth largest county by population in North Carolina. Uh, we actually only have one incorporated city in Durham County. It's the city of Durham. It's a little confusing to people sometimes. I would say about 90% of the population of Durham County lives in the city of Durham. So there is some unincorporated area, but a good portion of the population is concentrated in the city. But we do have some rather rural areas uh, up north and a little bit down south. Uh, we are about, I want to say, 340,000 people, something like that, very rapidly growing. And we do have a strong history of sustainability in our community, but certainly a lot of work to be done. I'm Katie Rose Levin. I'm the Urban Forestry Manager for Cary, North Carolina. We're a small community in the Triangle, um, about 180,000 folks. We have a very diverse population in a way that a lot of people don't think about. So we have a large population of white and Caucasian folks and white identifying folks. And we also have a fairly large population of uh, folks from Asia, larger than almost anyone in the region except for Morrisville, which is actually a majority minority and they are sort of surrounded by us. So we have a distinct population. We also have one of the fastest growing populations. So we have a lot of new people who are coming in. We have one of the oldest populations in our region. So we have a higher proportion of people above 55 and that population is rising. And I bring all of these things up because they are pertinent to our conversation about heat. Right, that's interesting. I would have not guessed that of Carrie. It's true. We're more than we're more than uh, the containment area for relocated Yankees, which is what people used to call us. Yeah. We're way more than that, and way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a good amount of information on that project that's available on the web, but if you could give us the executive summary of um, what you presented at the annual meeting from the perspective of a sustainability manager director. Uh, sure. So uh, the project we're referring to is our urban heat island mapping project that we took, uh, did last summer. It was funded through a grant from NOAA and through a project that is coordinated by an organization called Kappa Strategies. And I think the point of it was to see really on the ground level, where are our urban heat islands? And urban heat islands, as many people listening to this probably know, but just in case I'll give a little brief on that. The idea of urban heat islands is that there are certain parts of a community that are gonna be hotter than others. On the same day at the same temperature, you could have a difference of even 10 degrees within a mile. We found that actually in our study. And that's because certain materials like bricks, concrete, asphalt, all absorb the energy from the sun while it's shining and, and really concentrate that and then re-emit that out. Black surfaces also absorb that. Whereas you have things that are green spaces or uh, trees and shady areas and water that actually do the opposite. They help to cool an area. So if you have an area that doesn't have a lot of green space, a lot of concrete, a lot of dark surfaces, it's gonna be hotter than others. 
and it continues to stay hot longer. So overnight, even when the sun's not shining, those surfaces continue to re-emit that heat into the atmosphere. And so we feel that it's right at the areas where people are. That has certain impacts. Certainly the people who live or work or play or go up, take the bus, wait at a bus stop in those areas that are hotter are gonna feel that more. We wanted to understand where those areas were so we could really work with the people who are affected most and try to mitigate those, those heat islands and also protect people uh, so that they know more about what the concerns are with heat. Certain people are also more vulnerable to heat based on their demographics, their age, uh, people who are older, people who are younger, people who have pre-existing conditions like hypertension or uh, asthma, people who are reliant on public transportation because they don't have the luxury of getting in their air-conditioned car. They've got to walk on the hot street, stand by the bus. People who are experiencing homelessness, I'm forgetting some, and Katie Rose, I'm sure, can uh, add on to those. But also, we've seen historically people who have who experienced systematic racism, historic racism. Those are the areas where we see a lot of these areas that have high urban heat because they do have more impervious surface, less trees, all of that. So there is definitely an issue of equity that needs to be addressed. And so we want to be finding those areas and then working with the people in those areas to, to mitigate that and to educate them about what to be aware of. So all of that to say, we undertook this project this summer, picked one day out of the summer that was gonna be really hot and we got a whole bunch of volunteers. And when I say we, there was a whole team. We partnered with the Museum of Life and Science, which is based in Durham. We partnered with the city of Raleigh. They did it the same day in Raleigh. We partnered with Activate Good that organizes volunteers the Weather Service based in Raleigh and our State Climate Office and our State Resilience Office. So there were a lot of partners involved in this. We had this on this one day, three groups went out in the morning, went out in the afternoon and went out at night, three stages and had a map of a area that they needed to cover. And they got some instruments that went on either their car or their bike or they handheld them. And those instruments measured temperature and relative humidity every 15 seconds and geolocated that. When they did all of that, we had all this data, it went back to Kappa Strategies and they then created these maps that showed exactly where we had areas that were hotter or cooler. And we could see which ones were hot in the morning, which means they never cooled off overnight. We could see which ones were hot in the middle of the day, the hottest of the hot, and then also uh, in the evening when things were starting to cool off. And as I mentioned, we saw within a mile a difference of 10 degrees. That's pretty significant. And I will say we thought that this was going to be a, a super hot day. It was forecast 10 days earlier to be in the 90s. And it ended up being in the 80s because there was wildfires out west and the smoke had drifted all the way across the country and actually was suppressing some of that heat so this was a day that wasn't even the hottest of the hot. It was an 80 something degree day and we still could really see that, that difference. So you can imagine on a day where it's 90 degrees, 95 degrees, then those hotter areas are in the hundreds and that's really significant. I think we can argue that 80 is still quite hot. <laughs> it was warm all day. I was sweating a lot all day. <laughs> I'd like to sort of build on a little, a couple of things that Tobin said that I think we're really exciting about talking to a group of sustainability managers from across the region. One is 
well, Tobin, what y'all just said, 80 degrees is still really hot, right? When we're cooking things, sometimes we fry them, right? And then they're instantly cooked. So those are those like 100 degree days. That's when we have heat waves and people die fairly quickly. And we'll talk about which people tend to die or are sort of mortally hurt or injured. And also a way that we cook things is low and slow. So you wanna make a brisket, you wanna tender things up and like get them really juicy. You cook them at a, at a heat, but it's a low heat for a really long time. And so when Tobin is talking about those places that never cool down, those things that are 80 degrees all day and night, that's cooking us from the inside out, really. A lot of folks who maybe don't have air conditioning have to choose between power and food and medicine and rent. A lot of these folks can't escape folks who work night shifts who have to deal with the heat during the day and then when they move around at night, folks who actually just work outside all the time, right? So there's a lot of illnesses heat that are aggravated by these low and slow cooking that we do of our bodies. You know, heat strokes are those hot, but then heart attacks, asthma, sort of these hypertension, all of these things about sort of our, our liquids being heated, that our muscles not being able to cool down, chronic illnesses like MS, uh, dementia can be aggravated by low and slow heat. So one of the things I wanted to really emphasize about the findings in Tobin studies is we shouldn't just be looking at the hot hots. We also need to be looking at the cool hots, right? We need to be looking at the night hots. From a tree standpoint, it's not always the heat during the day that kills off our trees. It's the heat during the night when trees literally can't take a breath and cool down and calm down to do those things they do for us, like clean the air, cool the air, remove pollution, provide us health and shading. So I do think that we should be looking at the studies that Tobin did and that others like her are doing from heat mapping to say, oh, it's not just that we're getting these peaks. It's the valleys aren't low enough to give us that heat and that relaxation that we as human beings, not to mention like the birds and the bees and the butterflies that, you know, make our food, <laughs> need in order to, to live. I wanted to just really bring that up from what Tobin said to emphasize how important these types of studies are and how important it was that she brought in not just like folks like us who work in this every day, but she was like out there getting people who just like to walk, bird watchers, people who like to ride bikes, who like nature, maybe don't think about the things that we as sustainability managers and others think about. So I'll say one more thing before I move on. One of the things we did during the workshop that I found really engaging and exciting was start to name the different type of folks who might have be impacted by urban heat island effect. I call it the easy baked oven effect. I know that's not great, but you know, like I was a kid who had an easy bake oven. It was basically a toaster oven. And I call it the easy bake oven effect because when you give a kid a toaster oven, you don't let it get too hot. So you have to like cook things, uh, cook at a low heat. And every time I go outside to go into the grocery store that doesn't have trees, walking through an easy bake oven, right? Like the sun is beating down on me from above and then I'm being roasted from below. And it's just like, oh, I'm turning into a cupcake, but not as delicious. So <laughs> I use that to describe what the urban heat island effect is to people. I think they can relate to being stuck in a toaster oven or an easy bake oven in a way that's really visceral. And that's when we started talking about the type of people who are caught up, who are vulnerable to this heat. One of the things when you think about is how we relate to people viscerally. So there are some types of people who are going to be more impacted by the urban heat on effect that we don't think about that we are. Every one of us, if we are lucky, will become a person over 55. And people over 55 are more vulnerable to urban heat on effect. So that's us. 
every one of us, if we live long enough, will become disabled. We will break something. We will get one of the diseases that are chronic, hypertension, diabetes, asthma, high blood pressure, low blood pressure. Hopefully not, but possibly some Alzheimer's or dementia, depending on what runs in your family, MS, there's cancer. There's a huge amount of chronic illnesses or short-term illnesses breaking a leg. All of a sudden you walk slower. You are exposed to urban heat. We will become those people. In addition to, and Gary, folks who maybe English isn't their first language, right? So they can't get the um, information we're putting out or don't have the cultural awareness yet to know what to do in this type of heat if they're not from this region. Because even if you grow up in a dry heat, that's very different than the wet heat that the Southern folks experience. When you look at those high heat events, not the easy big oven, but the, the air fryers, I call it, right? <laughs> air fryer events. The people who die during these events are the people who don't have neighbors who check up on them. They're the people who aren't in our community. All of us move around. At some point, all of us will be a person who is new to arrive to a community. Maybe we have a lot of resources. Maybe we've had a lot of investment in our lives personally or in our neighborhoods personally. However, we all will experience at least part of that vulnerability. So if we're lucky, maybe we get to go somewhere where we're not around the first language, right? So like I go, if I get to live in Spain one year, I will not be first language speaker from there. What kind of vulnerable populations are we ourselves, our family members, our community members, and are, are things we don't think about, like Tobit just mentioned, having to walk a far distance into a grocery store to get your mail, that can expose you to heat. In addition to sort of neighborhoods that haven't had a lot of investment or have had de-investment, neighborhoods who don't have trees. The Urban Forest Foundation, I think it's called, Anyway, they put out uh, tree equity maps for many municipalities in the South. So you can go and look to see what your tree equity is and they encounter, they include heat in that. So you can see, oh, this part of our county has a low tree equity, they have low trees, they have high heat. Maybe I should be using trees as a tool to address that. And carry actually our heat equity, our lowest heat equity scores are in you know, some of our neighborhoods that have had de-investment or just don't have high resources at the moment. They're also out in the West where we have some of our new resources, new neighborhoods that are high resource. These are like million dollar homes that don't have trees, have very high heat and English isn't their first language. Looking at the data helped us get through our own expectations that communities of color are, all, are the only folks who are at risk. They often are, but they're not the only. And that people with high wealth don't need any information or support to address high heat. They do. Everyone does. So that's part of equity too, is just being aware to begin with of what people can, what people need. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less to get up to the same level. So all of that to say is we did a project that I am calling the road sunscreen project. So basically when we refinish the top of roads, we are doing an experiment with NC State to see if it's useful and helpful to add what is essentially street sunscreen, TiO2, titanium dioxide, to our road surfaces to see if that helps us um, reduce the urban heat island impacts, reduce the heating of the roads, as well as reduce the impact of the smog, the smog which is created from the pollution that comes out of the back of cars. In other words, when cars drive down the road, they emit nitrous oxides. Those combine with heat and oxygen create ozone which is very bad for our lungs. We're trying to see if this particular photocatalytic compound 
photocatalytic being light. Catalytic means changing, so it changes things in the presence of light, can reduce smog as well as reduce the uh, amount that the roads heat up. We don't know if it'll work, so we're pairing with NC State to see if it does work, and we'll let you know. That is our thing, which is not as finished as Tobin's thing, but it is a thing we are doing. <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating. I never thought about adding something to the mixture. I know that you know using concrete or a light-colored pavement is better than using asphalt. That is very innovative. That is super interesting, and I love calling it street sunscreen. That's... <laughs> That's really great. So yes, definitely we'll be looking forward to the results. What's what's the timeline on that project? We did the application and are working with the researchers this year. They'll do research all throughout the four seasons to see the different impacts over the seasons, do the analysis. So it should be late 2023. I do I do want to flag that the high albedo pavements do a good job at reflecting sunlight back, just like clouds. It's a trade-off. And so if you have high albedo, so you're reflecting the light back, it's very challenging to get a dark sky because you need street lights and then all of that light gets reflected back into the sky. The other thing I would flag is a better way to reduce heat in general is to shade those roads using trees. So the more that we invest into doing something bad better, which is increasing the amount of impervious surfaces we have, but making them light, right? So the bad thing is impervious surface, doing it better by making them white the less we invest in doing something good really well, which is creating spaces for trees and green spaces and people, because impervious surfaces are designed for machines and not people. I do think that that is one of the tools, just like tree, street sunscreen is one of the tools that we should use when we can't avoid doing something bad. Uh, I also think it's important for us to remember that it's always as sustainability managers, our job to help other people envision doing something good better. Thanks for my PSA. <laughs> I, I agree uh, completely. And there are different tools and different solutions, just like everything in sustainability for different situations. There are lots and lots of places we should be planting trees. And there are lots of places where we have roads that are not going to be shaded and we have to do something there. And there are lots of places where we have to, you know, do other things. And so that's really part of the work now going forward is what are we going to do with this information? You know, in the short term, making sure that people who don't currently have ways to cool themselves have ways to cool themselves is a really important short term because we can we we are planting trees. We need to plant trees. It's going to take a while till they grow big enough to shade things. And are we giving out fans or air conditioning, creating cooling centers, obviously doing education. But if people can't afford to run their air conditioner, having an air conditioner isn't going to help. So, you know, how all of these things kind of are pieces to a puzzle that we have to, to weave together. I did want to just throw out there for people if they are interested in the uh, sunscreen project or just that idea that Kitty Rose mentioned, there is a Cool Roads Partnership. I think it's a global Cool Roads Partnership, and you can look them up. There's lots of information there, and it's free to join, and then you kind of get a lot more information about that. Even though it's called the Cool Roads Partnership, as far as I can tell, they do seem very focused on this kind of technology of coding roads and not so many so much as the other techniques, but that may change as, as far as I can tell, it's a fairly new partnership. Yeah, Tobin, that's where we got connected with this idea and that's correct. So the Cool Roads Partnership came out of the Cool Cities Partnership. So they were the ones who originally developed like the cool roof applications, which are one of the tools that you just mentioned. So basically best way to address roofs is to paint them white 
putting on green roofs is good for a lot of other reasons, but it's not cheap. So this is like that baseline tool. The Cool Roadways Partnerships, the stated goal of them, they are free and they are, I'm glad that they're there, is to work with industry partners to develop techniques that industry can produce to help provide those gap solutions. I can definitely see uh, in a community like in Sandy Springs, we own very limited right of way. And we've been trying to plant street trees, but we don't own the property. And there's some legal challenges with planting on private property, uh, you know, investing public money on private property and not having a guarantee that that investment will survive long term. So I think uh, there's, there's definitely room for both nature-based and technology-based solutions to this issue. Yeah, we need those green grain solutions to work together. And I think the last piece of that is like the green grain, green gray, and I don't call this fleshy, maybe purple, like purple solutions for the communities, as opposed to be like flesh colored. That's like the whole rainbow and also kind of morbid sounding. Um, <laughs> but the people solutions are, for example, the reason why probably I know Tobin is because I started with Keep Darn Beautiful working with them to plant trees and they're a nonprofit, but they sit within the city. So there's a city staff, nonprofit, uh, nonprofit resources that work with the community plant trees on public and private properties. And I actually ran an environmental justice nonprofit called Trees Durham and we exclusively planted on private properties because for the reason you stated, Catherine, we didn't believe that we should be substituting private money for a public infrastructure like trees. And so this comes back to like people-centered solutions going back to why Tobin's project was so good, it's like it was people-centered, people did the measurements, we cared about people. Putting people at the center, not only does that help you keep equity at the center, it, which is important when it comes to heat, the most vulnerable populations, the ones that get the sickest, uh, it also helps us provide solutions to the type of thorny, thorny and complex challenges that you just brought up, Catherine. Any last tip or recommendation for uh, people in our position and, and how they can start considering heat as an issue that needs to be addressed. Drawing on what Katie Rose is just saying, really finding out how the community is experiencing heat is a really good way. So when you're talking with people at their community meeting, sharing you know about what the concerns might be with heat, why, why we as a government are thinking about it, and then finding out how are you experiencing it, what happens to you on 80 degree days or 90 degree days or 85 degree nights, whatever, to really see how they're living it, because that's what matters. We can take all these measurements, but it really matters is how people are living it. That's something that can just be woven into really almost any community conversation. But if people are interested in actually getting measurements, there, there are grants available just like the ones that we got that local governments can apply for to map out their own communities which is great and also we uh, the Museum of Life and Science our partner purchased several lower cost sensors that can be handheld uh, or can be stationary you can sort of put them somewhere for a week and then move them somewhere else uh, and we also have some uh, called flare cameras that take infrared pictures so you can really see look take a picture of something and see really what's hot and what's cool and what the shade under the tree looks like versus something right next to it those are really fun they're really great teaching tools 
But now that our community owns those, uh, we can continue to take some of these measurements in areas that didn't get covered or areas that were of concern and now we've done something and we wanna see what happens after that. Uh, they'll be used in our schools. Or we're gonna get our school children involved in looking at heat in their schools and around their schools. And then that can be integrated into all sorts of math and science and art and all sorts of fun things. That's something that really any community could do. The sensors themselves aren't that expensive. They're very user-friendly, very easy to train volunteers on. And then, you know, you can have data hacks, hackathons and things like that, where then people can use that data and find out new cool stuff. So there's a lot of citizen science, I think, that can be involved in this. Uh, that can then translate into real action in the community of, gosh, now we know what this looks like here. We, we really want shade over this bus stop. That's our highest priority. Some other community is really going to want something else, more trees, or they're going to want some area that's a pervious surface that's not really being used right now to be converted into some grasses or bushes or whatever. So uh, that's really the fun part is getting into what each community is going to want or need. Yes, definitely. The uh, community involvement aspect of that project and its outcomes is very interesting. What is your timeline in terms of uh, implementation of solutions? Do you have anything coming up really soon? Have you started or what does it look like? Uh, yeah, we so we had a webinar a couple months ago to, to, to share with everyone the results and kind of share the maps and they're now up on my website. And so we uh, are going to be scheduling some of these community meetings with particular neighborhoods. There were some that we met with ahead of time to say, we're doing this project. Are there particular areas that you want to make sure are on the route so that we get measurements in those areas? So we definitely want to go back to those communities. And then we're going to kind of let the community lead and say where, where it is that they want to go with this. We're also putting together interns and students from the local university who hopefully will be working on sort of some one pagers on like, what are the solutions to these? So that it's kind of a toolkit of like, what are some of the things we can do? And then give people an idea. And it's not the end all be all. I'm sure there's some ideas out there we've never thought of. And I'm excited to hear what those are. This is not a, a short-term thing. It's gonna be kind of for the long haul. I'll also add, we're in the process of updating our comprehensive plan here in Durham. And the timing for this report was really great because we then can, translate this into some policies and then urban you know, zoning and things like that, that we can um, hopefully really address some of the institutional and structural issues that are causing the heat islands in Durham. That sounds good. We'll definitely be uh, keeping an eye on, on the progress that you're making. Katie Rose, is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, if you wanna hear how the um, the road sunscreen project came out and Carrie just sort of keep an eye on Carrie's website. We'll be putting out information or you can always write me or we have a 311. You can just write 311 and they will provide you either a direct link to me or information on the project itself. You know, we're hopeful that this is another tool that we can use and we're really excited that Carrie can be testing it for hopefully our region. Very pleased and honored to be part of this group and supporting the good work that everyone and all of us do. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, both of you. And uh, Katie Rose, I really appreciate the equity perspective that you, you were able to provide. Uh, I'm slightly terrified about cooking from the inside out, but I guess that's the reality that we live in, in the Southeast, right? Uh, at least both of us. 
again, thank you so much uh, to, for, for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having thank us. You. With summer coming up, Heath is on the mind of many sustainability, resilience, emergency management, and public health officials. And this topic inevitably brings up the equity angle. Some people are more affected than others by excessive temperatures, whether it's at the individual or at the community level. The solutions to this challenge are not easy or fast to deploy whether we're looking at high-tech solutions like pavement coatings or planting trees, which is decades old, low-tech and proven, but very slow to provide results. I hope this episode was inspiring to you. And until next time, stay cool.